Hey everybody, welcome to the James Sutton Posse. Today, Posse is joined by Martin Olson, legendary comedy writer. You could have seen him. Writ well, I can't even talk right now. That's the problem over here. God damn it, I always screw up with my intros, but that's okay. We go on anyway. No editing. <laughs> you can see Martin's work on Phineas and Ferb, Milo Murphy's Law, Rocco's Modern Life. He's written for the SAG Awards for, I believe, four years. Numerous HBO comedy specials. One of the original founding members of the Boston comedy scene from the 1980s. That is right. If you don't know what that is, you haven't lived just yet. And today, he is here to join us. He is promoting his hilarious book, The Encyclopedia. I'm going to say it like an asshole right now. The Encyclopedia of Hell 2, The Conquest. <laughs> of heaven, a demonic history of the future concerning the celestial realm and the angelic race which infests it. God damn, that is a long ass title, but it sounds freaking epic. Now, he sent me a review of this last night. I read it. And from what I understand, this is supposed to be the greatest comedy book in the history of mankind. And I got to tell you something, knowing this guy, it most definitely is. So Martin, how you doing, baby? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. i Really liked your stand-up. I was pleasantly surprised. You never know, right? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So, although I will, t I got to tell you, I was, uh, I'm kind of happy that you liked it because it would have been a bit strange if you had watched my stand-up and then continued to come on to the show. So I know, but dude, that happens that. all the time. It, it, is it isn't even it happens all the time, but it isn't even when somebody's not a good comedian. It's just because it doesn't hit you sometimes, you know. Everybody has That's different true. tastes in comedy. It's a weird fucking thing. Well, at, the, at the end of the day, it's all subjective. But uh, yes. absolutely. But I was going to say, let's uh, we'll start off. I was going to say because we were talking about it right beforehand, the Boston comedy scene. So, by the way, if you haven't figured that, I suck at segways. So we're just going to jump straight into that. <laughs> well, the, here's the whole this story. Is, you want me to just uh, launch into it, dude? Just go for it. So I had, I was, a, I'm a songwriter. I've written like 350 songs for Disney. I've been doing it since I was 12, right? And at the same time, I've been writing stories on my toy typewriter, right? And so I always wanted to be a comedy writer since I ever, since I saw Brother Theodore and Andy Kaufman on TV. Amazing. So, and I never met Andy Kaufman, but my writing partner was a friend of his, so that was at least something, but brother Theodore, I, he got, he got a copy of my first book before he died. And he's the guy that really inspired me to do comedy. He uh, wrote a blur, a blurb for the, for the cover of my book. And then he croaked. <laughs> so it was God a dream come true. That was his last <laughs> sentence right before he died was a blurb for the book. I, I'd like this. I like to think that, but Damn. at any rate, if any of you guys haven't heard, Brother Theodore, just look up David Letterman and Brother Theodore, and you're in for a treat. The guy was incredible. He was one of the first uh, nihilistic performance artists, and just just he's the guy that inspired me to do comedy. Amazing. So the Boston comedy scene, I was watching them, and I wanted to be a comedy writer, and uh, I was doing songs with my writing partner in Massachusetts, <clears throat> my songwriting partner. And we said, okay, we did four albums. Why don't we do a do do some comedy records? You know, we're fans of comedy albums, so we started doing that. And then I started writing jokes and bits and sketches. 
and wanted to go around to try to sell them. And the only thing that was around at that time, there were no comedy clubs. The only thing was gong shows. And uh, <laughs> there was one in Boston, Bruce Smirnoff, the comedian, who's a wonderful guy. He uh, has been around forever, was the host. And I tried to sell some stuff and he was very honest with me. He said, look, this sucks. And he told me why it wasn't good. And I'm like 21, you know? All so right. uh, then I went in, so I saw that Sean Morey, the Boston comedian, was doing a comedy class. And so I said, well, maybe I could learn how to do this better. So I went, signed up for his comedy class. And there I met Bill Downs and, and Paul Barkley, who, who the three of us hooked up together because I wanted to do a comedy theater in Harvard Square. And they wanted to do a regular comedy club in in Boston. <clears throat> so we, the three of us hooked up because I'm a piano player and I was right trying to write comedy and they were beginning comedians and comedy writers. So the three of us started the Comedy Connection in 1978. And that was at the Charles Playhouse, um, the bottom bar beneath the theater in the theater district in, in downtown Boston. We just put an ad in the paper, Comedians Wanted. We didn't have any comedians. Are you there? No, I'm still there. I lost you for a second, but I'm also still in shock that you were one of the guys that started the Comedy Connection. Yeah, there was nothing before we did that. So Comedians Wanted, we put it in the Phoenix. And uh, Stephen Wright came in to audition. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. And Lenny Clark and uh, Steve Sweeney and Don Gavin. And everybody, we, I mean, I was there when I saw all of their first performances. It's like until, a who's who. <laughs> until the la until the end, you know, because the piano player has to be there on stage the entire time. So at any rate, uh, that's how that got started. And then uh, this guy named Jim, Jim Harris, whom I didn't know, introduced himself. And he said, hey, listen, Channel 38, which was like the the Red Sox station at the time was in what you called UHF channels off the, off the regular channels frequencies. Okay. They had monster movies Saturday nights. He said, what if we go in and we pitch doing a comedy show using the comedians that we, we were, were just starting. This is the first year. And so we went in and pitched it and they bought it. So we did for two years, we did a show called Lenny Clark's late show that Lenny and I wrote <laughs> and he was the host. It was a half hour of comedy a week interspersed between a, a, a shitty uh, monster movie. And it was, we had, we had a ball because we had, everybody did it. I mean, Steve Wright did it. I mean, the whole, the whole group became friends and also was way, way different because these guys had tried out, tried to go to New York and so on, but the club owner scene was so totally different because it was the comedians running the show, you know? So it was much wilder and freer. And there was nobody telling anybody not to do anything. So Lenny used to do stuff, I mean, way before. I mean, he, he would be so imaginative and crazy. We would He would take people out into the street and do his act out in the fucking street. I mean... <laughs> It was amazing, the, the stuff that they would do. And we would do musical stuff all the time, you know, because I was right there. And Lenny and I became roommates. And we lived in a place 
that he called the barracks for for the whole time and and we had an, a comedian room roommates so uh Barry Crimmins came into town and he said, Hey, I'm starting this new, uh, I started a club in upstate New York. I want to start one in uh, Cambridge. It's at a, it's at a uh, Chinese restaurant, sort of a Western theme. So I went over there just to investigate and Barry was super charming and funny. And he said, Oh, you play piano over there. Why don't you play piano here too? So then I ended up playing piano for both clubs and trying to write material for all all the comedians that that I liked so meanwhile we're doing the tv show so Barry was on that a lot (laughs) it just was a homemade I mean it just was a local tv show but it was pretty fucking funny and we got kicked off finally after two years because we had a bit that Bobcat Goldthwait who was very young then oh good boy using his character and he uh, he was being he was playing a, a we called it in those days mentally retarded boy, <laughs> and there was a preacher who was Ron Lynch, who was healing him. And so uh, the guy who ran Channel Thirty Eight brought us into his office and he played that tape for us. He said, "You're fired." <laughs> I like no no other thing just like here's the show you're fired I like that you played it though like you didn't know what it was <laughs> um, so I took those tapes Don Gavin and I and Jack Gallagher and I and Mike Donovan and I we drove across country a couple times um, separately with each one of them and I brought the tapes with me from the show so the last trip I was with Don Gavin and we drove all the way across country to, and went to San Francisco and all the way across during the drive. Uh, Don is probably, I think he's the funniest person alive. I think he might be the funniest person. <laughs> and Barry Crimmins would send us money, would wire us money. This is before the internet or anything. And we would get a couple hundred bucks here and there and so on. But Don would had a book and a little old, rumpled book that had had listed all the card parlors as we went in Cincinnati and Chicago and in Reno so he would play cards and he would always win he's a he's a poker player and so that's how we financed our trip across the country so you just card sharked your way across the country is basically what you're telling me well I'm not a, I'm an idiot I can't pl- I don't can't play poker or win or do anything like that but Don was a master con man. In fact, he was famous for doing cons in Boston. For example, during the, one of the some of the biggest hockey games, which are totally sold out six months in advance, he would uh, always get in, and he'd get in for free by doing this con. He would uh, get an old jumpsuit that zippered up a blue jumpsuit, and he'd buy for twenty bucks a refrigerator of Dolly, right? And then okay. he'd, he'd get for two bucks, he'd get a, a big chunk of ice. Because in those days, the concessionaires inside the Boston Gardens used ice, the big blocks of ice. All right. So he'd walk up to the place where you were, the not the ticket place, but the place where you'd go in if you're a, somebody who works there in his jumpsuit, wheeling a giant block of ice. 
And he said, I, I, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here for the concessions. He said, well, where's your, where's your ID? Where's your, where's your ID? What's I says, what do you mean? What do you think I'm here for? I'm, I have a block of ice. I have to bring it over to see Tony. He just made up any name. And they let him in. And then he just would go up to the second tier and he'd take, he'd take off the jumpsuit and he'd just throw away the ice and the fucking dolly. And he would have standing room only seats. That is phenomenal. And also goes to show you the security that they had going on back then. <laughs> well, I just yeah. I just love that he just said Tony or whatever Boston name you could think of. Yeah, no, Bill. I'm here to see Bill. That's just the scratching the surface. That's just an example of many, many things that he did because he was a high school teacher and he was so good at talking to people and, make, and making everybody laugh all the time. He's so witty and such a fast talker. We used to go. He would say we, while we was driving cross country, he'd say, yeah, man, I feel like a movie. Let's see a movie. I said, we don't have much money. He says, don't worry about it. He says, he pulls up here. Let's watch blah, blah, blah. He says, just, I said, what we, I don't think we should spend the money on a movie. We need food. <laughs> he said, just do what I do. I said, what? Just follow me and do what I do. So we'd walk in and he would walk with his, you know, leather jacket thing zipped up go right past the ticket person. <laughs> and he just, I'm walking slowly and he just walk and say, how you doing? And then he'd keep walking. So I did the same thing. I said, how you doing? And then followed Don. And we get up to the, we're in, we're in. And so I said, what was that all about? He says, they think we're cops, dummy. So that's how we got. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we saw movies all the time going cross country. <laughs> I like that. How you doing? All right. Let them in. That ain't bad. Well, plus he's a big guy, very imposing guy. Well, that's the key. But the Boston accent definitely probably helps you out. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so we got to San Francisco. Oh, you want me to continue this? It's quite a tale, actually. So I, want, I definitely want you to continue. But I do want to ask you at one point during the show, I do want to hear because the way you described it beforehand, that you're living in the barracks with a bunch of other comics. Yeah. And from what I could say from personal experience, that comedians are absolutely hilarious they are also absolute animals 24 7 so <laughs> which i feel like it's not even an insult it's just true <laughs> so my question is at one point during this story i want to hear the craziest comic story that you have if if, if, you're, if you're comfortable saying that you no know, worries if you're not we probably will silently judge you but that's okay <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know they say well, that could give you my a attempt to it's my attempt at peer pressure, but I do want to hear the rest of this journey because it sounds insane. Well, it was how my career got started. That's why this is, it's interesting to hear because it follows to everything else I want to talk about. It's like your but origin I will story. definitely go back to say what it was like in the barracks. In fact, there's, a, there's two documentaries that were made about the Boston comedy scene and living in the barracks, which was in Cambridge across from Harvard University. So I'll go back to that and tell you what it was like, because it was a trip, man. It was me, uh, Lenny, Lenny's brother, Mike, Kenny Rogerson, Barry Nykrug. I mean, the funniest people ever. And Gavin and Sweeney and everybody was always over there. And Jimmy Tingle. So uh, to continue the story, we ended up in San Francisco, me and Don. And it just so we went to where's the comedy clubs and we went to Cobb's. And it just so happened that that night we, we got there at like 7.30. And they said, oh, 
why don't you sign up for the, you're from Boston. When you're from out of town, when you're in a comedy club, you have a little bit of cachet, a little mystique. I remember that happened a lot during the Comedy Connection days. Some guy would come in from New York. He'd say, yeah, I'm a comedian. Wow. I play at the, the comic strip. I play at the, and, and, and we would be enthralled, you know, because we were fucking rubes. And really, he just was an opening act or a middle act, but he would say, no, I'm a headliner. And so we, you know, Bill and That's Paul would, would put him on. Uh, and more often than not, and this happened several times, the person that came in that we didn't knew, no, New Yorker, fucking killed. So they stepped up to the occasion. It was very interesting about this mystique thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So... That was true of Don when we were at um, when we were at the Punchline, and at Cobb's in San Francisco. So they said, "Hey, your timing is pretty good." And so Don went up and he fucking killed, right? And so they said, "Why don't you uh, join the comedy competition? We it's twenty comedians each does five minutes, and then the next we judge them every night we at a different venue, and then the next week it's down to ten. And then you do 10 minutes and then the next week it's down to five. So, uh, in the, you know, so, so it was incredible. So we went to all of these different venues every single night, met every single comedian in, in, in San Francisco, the best ones. Everyone said from the beginning, look, Mike Pritchard is going to win. He's the funniest guy here. And, uh, and, he did indeed win. He's a big giant. One of the, I think he's, he's like Gavin. He's one of the funniest people in the world. And Don and I, because people liked us because we, you know, Don was funny. Right. And so comedians said, why don't you, where are you staying? We don't have any place to stay. We don't have any money. So I stayed with Kevin Meany. Right. Oh, funny. One of the funniest comedians ever. He and I became best friends. I ended up writing comedy specials with him and fucking movies and shit. And, and I w- went over to London, w- w- head writer for his show for Comedy Central and everything, just as a result of this chance thing that we did. Don Gavin stayed at Michael Pritchard's house. Michael Pritchard's wife, Mary Jo, ended up being my writing partner for 30 years. You know, we did Jesus. movies and TV shows. And it just was all because of this chance meeting. And here's the kicker. We went over to Petaluma. It was an old theater. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so I'm backstage with Don. We're meeting, we're talking with the guys we've been meeting each night, right? Because every night now we're all getting to know each other. And Mike Pritch- Pritchard was definitely the funniest, most amazing comedian. He was incredible. He didn't really have an act. He just made funny noises and told ridiculous <laughs> stories and made faces. And he just was the funniest motherfucker you'd ever, you'd ever see. And he was fucking huge and the nicest guy ever. It just was, he had everything, this guy. And he ended up shortly after in The Tonight Show. So uh, I said, Don, I want to go out front and just watch these guys because, you know what I mean? I just want to see their acts because when we're backstage, they didn't even have a monitor set up. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, this guy came on. His name was Jeremy Kramer. And he was an Italian guy, and he wore this. He wore an impeccable three-piece suit, sunglasses, and uh, you know, 
mustache and a goatee and uh and thick and thick black hair and he did no transitions at all he did no introductions he just went into characters and sketches that he did and then he'd go to the next one with no fucking transition at all and it was the funniest shit i had ever seen i just fell in love with this guy and and, the, and he was killing and so i said to myself then this is i'm going to this guy i'm going to work with this guy and indeed jeremy kramer and i ended up being writing partners for big shows we both were we split we were both head writers for for, for shows comic strip live at fox we did uh, the 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 sag awards for four years i think i told you that it was jeremy and i were the only writers for it and um then we did then we were head writers for for an animated series the most expensive animated series up to that date for film roman which was which one twisted tales of felix the cat so nice. jeremy and i became writing partners it was just the most incredible thing and we did comic strip live for four, three years you know so Don came in in the comedy competition. Michael Pritchard won. Don came in third. And I think Kevin Pollack came in second, who was hysterical. Kevin and Pollack. As result- I just want to say, Kevin Pollack has one of the greatest, I mean, it's amazing impressionist. And I still say, I saw him doing, I saw an old clip of him doing The Tonight Show. And he is one of the greatest, I think it was Woody Allen. He oh, does he an is. amazing, uh, to the point where you can't even like tell the difference between Woody Allen and him. It's amazing. He's incredible. Plus, he's the world's... I mean, all these guys were nice guys. Kevin Pollack is the nicest fucking guy you'd ever imagine. And Kevin... After Kevin Meany and I started doing HBO specials, you know what I mean? And they came out so crazy. <laughs> Kevin Pollack called me up and he said, Dude, I'm, I just got an H, a deal for an HBO special. Do you want to be head writer on it? So I said, Yeah. He says, What's Jeez. the money? I said, Well, I, I don't know what to charge you. I, I, I didn't have an agent yet because I just started it was my first goddamn year <laughs> and he said well whatever you got for Kevin Meany's I'll make it I'll pay more and I'll make you a producer that's what kind of a great fucking guy Kevin Pollack is that is stand up yeah so uh, as a result of that trip with Don that really made my career and it made my personal life the, the end of the story is this Monica Piper, who's one of the funniest female comedians, one of the funniest comedians, she at the time was going under her real name, which was Maylee Davis. And she, I think she, they ended up fifth, you know? All right. And so uh, she had flown in a writer from LA uh, whose name was Kay. I think I know where this is going. (laughs) She was very mysterious. And so, uh, so, she said, so at any rate, I, you know, we were mortal enemies. So, uh, you know, she didn't really talk with her much, but I didn't want to get too involved because she was the enemy. But then she said at the end of the thing, because there was a big party after the winners were announced, she said, are you guys going to L.A.? I said, yeah, well, come by and visit me. I live in the canals. She had one of the last rentals on the canals, an old shack before they built them all up. And the Venice canals is Fucking magnificent this place it's like a Jesus. dream come true so i ended up going down there and we fell in love and i moved in and we got married and we had two kids so that she's my wife so so that's 
that trip made my entire life. <laughs> so basically what you're telling me is that Kevin Meany and Kevin Pollack are responsible for your progeny. <laughs> In a way, that's I mean, I, that's what I understood. <laughs> they all know them. They all know our family for yeah. sure. I mean, other that is that is freaking fantastic. That's better than a lifetime story. But I love the fact that you referred to your future wife in this story as the enemy like three times. That's what I love. But my question well, then she, becomes, did did she think you were the enemy or was this just like a one-sided rivalry? <laughs> oh no, we were fucking heavy duty rivals because Monica Piper is super funny. And so we didn't I love you that. know what I mean? We Don, we wanted I wanted Don to win. So Don came in third. I mean, and that's, that was the final breakdown, first, second, and third. So that's, I think actually Pollock came in second. I can't remember. But uh, Monica, I think, came in fourth or fifth. But uh, the bottom line of that is that um, these other comedians be- used to come over to dinner all the time to our house, and they became our kids like godparents. They would, uh, these guys would be so funny, and my kids learned how to be funny. That's ah, that is amazing. I love the fact that they like got to know all those guys. Especially, I think they got to know Kevin Meany before like he passed away because he is was one of the funniest freaking guys I've ever seen. I never saw him live, but ah, oh, he's freaking hilarious. So, so Kevin calls me up. I mean, this is just typical what it, what what it was like, James. So Kevin calls me up. This is out of the blue. I'm already married here, and oh, by the way, I had a huge wedding in san francisco with with my wife Kay, who comes from san francisco but she was living in la and mike pritchard the guy i told you was the funniest guy in the world he got one of those licenses so you could marry somebody so he married Kay and i in the backyard in this beautiful wedding that all the comedians went to and we had a crazy uh uh, Dixieland band or, or you know, people were dancing through it just was the craziest shit ever it was so fun so I'm just sort of painting the full picture of how that trip really created my life you know that is insane although I do want to say because you're talking about some of the the ways that the, I have a story that I want to tell you which I think you might get a kick out of what is it I gotta hear it all right so because <laughs> You were talking beforehand about like the quality, like sort of like about the Lenny Clark show and the rest of it uh, and why you guys got fired off the air. So here's what I learned about Boston when I started out there. I don't know if it's something that you guys started that maybe somehow managed to infect like every other comic since then. But comics, this is why I think comics are absolutely out of their freaking minds. All right. (laughs) Especially Boston comics. This is what I learned. I learned I learned the hard way. You never play chicken with a Boston comic. So, yeah. So I got started out like maybe 2009, 2010. And yeah. I used to do, there was a show that they used to have. It was like, it, was, it wasn't, it was like at the back of, either it was in the back of a Chinese restaurant or it was like wow. something. I forgot what it was, but it was like an open like, mic that they used to have all the time. Whereabouts? Uh, remember? Shit, I'm trying to remember was the it name Cambridge of it. Cambridge or Boston? Now was uh was it in it wasn't in Cambridge it was in Boston. Okay. They um I used so let me give you some like some context over here. I used to have a bit. It wasn't the greatest bit of all time, but this was when I was starting out. So yeah. I used to do this bit where I'd have a buddy of mine in the audience and I'd always like call him up onto the stage. Now I wouldn't tell my plant what I was going to do. I just <laughs> told him just 
just act weird with whatever I suggest. That's great. So go, okay, yeah, that's, that's it. So I'd get up, he'd get up on stage, and I go, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to perform for everybody right now a live circumcision. <laughs> so this guy would like freak out, like, dude, are you serious? I was like, yeah, drop your pants. Right? And then he'd sort of like skedaddle off the stage. And then after the show, he'd be like, dude, what the hell? You don't tell me this? I was like, that's the comedy. So now, fast forward one night, I'm thinking I'm like, the worst thing I think a comic could actually do is think that they're hot shit. That's, I think, yeah. the worst thing that a comic yeah, could right. possibly do. Right. So I'm thinking that by this point, like, I'm king of the hill. <laughs> like, this, this this bit's phenomenal. This is going to get me on The Tonight Show, like, with everybody. That's going to be amazing. I get you. So one night, I'm at I'm at this open mic, like, in the back of the Chinese restaurant. And yeah. I'm like, this bit is so great, but I didn't have a plant. But I said, this is so great, I don't even need a plant. I'm just going to call up a random person. This is going to be phenomenal. Oh, no. So I call up needless. See, this was, this is how green I was. I didn't realize in an open mic, it was all comics. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. Ju- like they weren't actual people. <laughs> uh, so I get I call this guy up onto the stage. I was like, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to perform for everybody right now a live circumcision. Yo, before I said anything else, this guy dropped his pants so fast. Oh. <laughs> all right. No underwear. Uh, Nothing. Uh, With confidence he should not have had. So now <laughs> plus he ruined the bed. <laughs> no, well, that that's now I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Of course. So he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And now the audience is looking at me like, what are you gonna do? Uh, so now I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, let me one up this guy. So I'm like, does anybody here have a sterilized knife? <laughs> this guy took out a switchblade, okay? The, guy, start, the comedian who has his pants down? He took out like a... I don't know where he got the blade from. <laughs> he just yeah, he took out a knife and starts cleaning it off with a lime. And I still don't know where the hell he got the lime to this day because he wasn't anywhere near a table. So wow. now he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And then I just get, I looked over. I was like, good night, everybody. It's like, <laughs> I, see I was like, I'm out of here. I got the hell off the stage. I never went back for like... For like three months, I didn't go back. And wow. I was like, I, I, and since then, by the way, I've never called anybody up to the stage. I've yeah, never you know, done that. You, you had a beat though, because you, when you use the plant, that's the way to do it. But the, I thought you were going to say how you totally, uh, because you bailed. But I thought that you were going to say how you turned it around and fucked over that guy. <laughs> turned it around. Listen, man, the only other way I could have turned it around by that point was going to wind up with me in jail. And I didn't want to go there. And I didn't want to get near. Let's put it this way. I didn't want to get a closer look to what this guy was going with. So, Well, I got a, I got a complimentary story for you. In the early comedy connection, uh, Lenny Clark had the Wednesday night show. I think he was so fucking funny. I mean, the he was like Richard Belzer. He was like one of the world's greatest saloon comics ever in history. Jesus. He's also a surrealist. So Lenny would do weird stuff. And I told you, I lived with him. And he and I wrote this TV show every week. <laughs> so that he was the host of. So Lenny comes in in a priest robe, like one of those Italian pre- long priest robes in a, in a priest smock up at top, whatever the white thing. And it was around the, uh, uh, what was the ship thing where the ships would go by in the bay in Boston? It was called the something of the something. The uh, Oh, um, I know what you're talking about. Hold up. <clears throat> this is the beauty of Google. 
Let's see the ship, ship's bay in Boston. It's where they would come in. The ships would come in once a year. It would be like an armada, and they would call it the something. It was like a religious term or something like that. Uh, so, the only thing that shows up here is well, I think I'm on the wrong page because I got the oh, I know what it is. Port Authority. I know what it is. The priests and all those all those people come down, and they call it the blessing of the fleet. And so oh, that's holy. And that was every year. And so Lenny said, "All right, we're going to do a blessing of the fleet." And he had already worked it out with Bill Downs to be to be dressed as as a priest. And Lenny, oh no, Bill Downs was the one dressed up as the priest. I'm sorry. And Lenny came in, sauntering in with a wearing nothing except a silk bathrobe, and so like a super fancy silk bathrobe, <laughs> bare feet. <laughs> so, so Bill Downs announces the blessing of the fleet. He says, "Of course." We're going to do it tonight, though, with the comedians. And Lenny steps in. He says, yeah, it's going to be the blessing of the hogs. And so he had two other comedians in bathrobes come. And Lenny just uh, just made this happen. I didn't even know he was doing it. And I was playing music to while they were doing it. And Bill, and the three comedians turned their backs to the audience, opened their their bathrobes. Oh, God. And then Bill Downs went was blessing with a decanter thing with smoke. Jesus Let's Christ. They're hogs, as Lenny said. And the audience was in fucking stitches. It was so funny. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of a parallel to the story of your bit. But that but, was Lenny Clark's uh, concoction. But your, yours had a happier ending than mine. Mine was me <laughs> running off in shame, wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life. Well, when Lenny then took over Friday night shows at the Ding Ho, when the Ding Ho started... That was the biggest show in Boston. There were crowds. I mean, we had a we had we turned people away at the Comedy Connection for sure, because we basically we just by luck ended up right when the comedy boom was starting. The timing was right in terms of the societal needs. And over in Cambridge, Lenny's show was completely you couldn't get in. There was lines down the street in Cambridge. It was Inman Square. And Lenny had the open mic night because he would he would open up for about an hour. <laughs> That's a hell and of a mic. Because I worked with him, uh, I lived with him. He had a box of material, and I would go through. Hey, Lenny, this is good. Hey, Lenny, what is this? He would have all these little scratchings on little scraps of paper, and it was all. I mean, a lot of it was just nothing, but so much of the stuff was hysterical. And so he would piece together his act just by all these notes that he was constantly writing. I mean, that's really was the key to all these guys. Just constant writing. That's it. And so uh, I wanted to tell you about, I was piano player over there too. And I was tired because I'm playing at both clubs and I'm trying to write comedy for comedians and doing the TV show with Lenny. And initially I had, tried to do an act, but I don't like performing. I don't like being in front of people, but I did a guitar act, you know, because I'm a musician, right? All right. So I, so I wrote uh, funny songs, no parodies, just funny, weird songs and shit. And I showed a nice. Super 8 films and uh, and had guest comedians come up. And do, we do a little, like a little mini talk show. That was my act before before we had enough comedians so that I could relinquish performing. So I had a night off. It was when Lenny's show was gangbusters and when it was packed. Bob Goldthwaite was, uh, before he developed his character, the Bobcat character, Right. he, used to, he was 16 when I met him. 
Holy he, mackerel. He knew Barry Crimmins because they both came from up, upstate New York. And uh, he and Tom Kenny, who later became the voice of SpongeBob and the biggest voice actor in the world, Jeez. was his partner. And Tom yeah. Kenny also was the nicest person in the world. I mean, he and Bob Goldthwait could win Saints Awards for being nice fucking people. It's unbelievable. The Boston scene was, was unparalleled in good guys. You're like the Forrest Gump of the comedy world. I swear to God. It's like, like, well, like, a, not in like an, an insulting way, but like more along the lines of like you somehow managed to like meet every single person. Of so, I don't know how the hell you managed to do it. And I think the funniest part of this entire interview was what you just said right now. Uh, I just wanted to get off stage and we could get enough comics. So that way I could get off the stage. Words no comic has ever said in their life. <laughs> I, want, I want to get off the stage. Even when we're bombing, we're still going, nah, I think I could turn this around. <laughs> well, that's, are, why I'm not, that's why I'm not a performer. That's why I hid behind no, a guitar. No. And, I I, it, and I, that's why I hid behind showing short comedy films that I would make, sound films. And that's why I'd hide behind having guest comedians come up. I, I had... When you're I like Washington. My... You're like Washington when he relinquished the presidency <laughs> at the end. That's like, and King George looked at him and said, a far greater man than I've ever known or something like that. They're going to make you king. And you're like, no, no, I'm out. <laughs> give it, give it to Adams. Jeez. Another, another example of how I did relinquish was I would have Steve Sweeney. He, he, it was his idea. Uh, he said, I have this dressing, I have this, uh, uh, like a princess gown that I could wear. I said, "What? You do that?" He says, "Yeah." I says, "What if I put a sheet <laughs> over you? Put a sheet over you, and you sit on a stool, and you're there before the audience gets in, and then, uh, then Wait, I, what color was the sheet? White. And so then, oh, God. then uh, it just was that he was hidden, and no one knew what who was under that. So then I did my songs. I showed my film, <laughs> and then I said, "Now we have special guests," and I pulled the sheet off and it was Steve Sweeney in a princess gown and he started doing his act. <laughs> what? What? And then when he was done, I pointed to the stool. He sat down. I put the sheet back over him. I said, thank you very much, very much, ladies. And that was the end of the act. But that was just an example of some of the stuff that I would do because I didn't want to be on stage. <laughs> That's... I thought you were going to say people walked in, they saw a guy sitting there on a stool with a white sheet over them. I was going to be like, I think I'm in the wrong meeting. I'll see you later. <laughs> it never even occurred to me. But, um, <laughs> I love anyway, the princess Kevin, though. I was telling you about uh, when Lenny had his show at the Dingho, and, and this is the story of how Bob Goldthwaite first did his character. We all were shocked the night he came up with his character, right? Mm -hmm. Because before Bob Goldthwaite, did just a, did a one-liner act. He was he like an angry young man. I mean, they're all really good jokes. He's a fucking genius writer. He always was. But he didn't have the... It, it just didn't click somehow, you know what I mean? Because he because he all was right. so angry on stage. And somehow it didn't click. Uh, and so I get a call. I, I told you, I'm home. I finally have a night off. I'm at the barracks. I'm reading a book in my bed and so because i'm not going anywhere don gavin calls me up he says you gotta get down the ding right away i said what are you talking about he said goldthwaite's on stage and he's he's acting like a, he, he used that phrase because that was the uh, 
the phrase that was okay in those days. He said, he's acting like a retarded boy. I said, what are you talking about? He said, he's on stage. Just get over here. And it was a five-minute cab ride. So I quickly called a cab and jumped in it and got over. And when I get over to the Ding Ho, um, I, I, I walked in and the place is fucking packed, which is one reason why this story was classic. Totally fucking packed. Couldn't move. And I'm watching in the back and I see, see Goldthwait on stage. And he uh, he's in a Cub Scout uniform. And... <laughs> And he's, you, for the first time ever, he's using this ferocious voice, which was the Bobcat character, which is the first time he ever did it. And everybody in the whole place, I heard the laughter from outside. They were, it was, he was killing. And all he did was he said three phrases over and over and over again. He didn't have an act. He just did it this way. It was all because he was a genius actor, comedian. <laughs> he said, me, and I can't imitate him. But he said, me, me, me and my brother... We saw Bigfoot. Me and me and my brother would take him forever to say me, me, me and my brother. And then they would laugh. And then he said, we, we, we saw Bigfoot. And then they it would be a big laugh. And then he would be angry because they're laughing at him and he's trying to tell a story. And so he said, shut up, like scream, shut up in that ferocious voice. And then they would howl at that because he'd start the story again. And he did it over and over and over again as if he's frustrated because he can't get the story up because everyone's laughing at him. And the audience was cr- couldn't breathe, uh, doubled over. I'm telling you, it was the funniest shit ever. And uh, I was back with, the, with Barry and with the comedians, and we literally couldn't believe it because he was such a shy guy. I mean, Bob is the sweetest fucking person in the world. <laughs> and so he did that angry act was, was crazy enough because he's so opposite of who he is. But, but, uh, that was the first night when he did his character. And I was so glad Don called me up because I got to see it the first time. And later on through the years when we both ended up, he did his, his cop movies and we both were in Los Angeles and he came over to the, to, to our place on the canals and we were laughing and reminiscing. And he said, Hey, wait a minute, I'm doing a comedy special. Why don't you write it with me? So then I ended up writing a movie with, Bob, a, a, a t- two TV specials, an HBO special. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I got I got to get more friends. <laughs> Jesus. So that's I how that. that's literally how that stuff happened. It was a magical kind of a it's pure amazing. pure luck. Pure luck is what it was, and I just was there at the right time. And I'm a creative person, so I just happened to be in the right group at the right time. <laughs> I I love it. Wait, so hold up, because I, I can listen to you talk about these stories for pretty much forever. So I want to get over to your book though, because the book is definitely interesting. And I want to talk about that for a second. So let's talk about Encyclopedia of Hell 2. I love this title, The Conquest of Heaven, a demonic history of the future concerning the celestial realm and the angelic race, which infests it. You, I love the fact, you know what this reminds me of? Do you ever see like whenever they, they have those like, uh, like those commercials when they're like, uh, where they're promoting, I don't know, like uh, some sort of pill or whatever for your liver or something. And then it's just like, it's great. And then there's like that guy who speaks like a thousand words a minute, like one of those auctioneers telling you like, if you take this pill, you're going to die. of And it's not safe and not recommended not to this or that. And definitely you can get it for $12.99. Something like that. It is that kind of a title for sure. It's hilarious. So the idea was to kind of, because you, you did you see a picture of the book? It's I'm a, looking at it right now. It uh, 
it's it's the same exact design as the first book, which is called. But it's in blue. Well, the first book was red. This one was blue, and it's it's mimicking. It's supposed to be an ancient book written by demons. The first book was written in hell, and uh, it's about it chronicles the demons. Hell's overcrowded, so they have to. <laughs> they Seems have about to right. invade Earth for the land space, and they use humans as food stuff. So they. The sec first book is them invading Earth, and they eat all the humans. And the second uh, book lovely. is Satan at this point, because he doesn't remember how he, he, he created all of hell and everything out of his mind, out of manifesting it with his mind and creating black magic. And all of the demons are also mind creatures, much like a, a, in the Jewish mysticism, a golem or a egregore, where, where you create a demon with your thoughts. So in the second book, Satan hears these rumors from earth theologians and all these idiots about god <laughs> and so satan is is something it hits something in him because he wonders if he's a created being he can't remember back that far he just remembers being in black he's determined now he sends out some enchantments and does a little research and he he, he knows where the locale is where the supposed personified god is because the entire universe according to earth is God technology is God, but right. a universe can't fucking do anything. It needs a body. So the universe manifested a personification, which is the personified God, which is a humanoid. Satan doesn't know it's for real or not, but he goes on a secret mission to find heaven. And if God is there to kill him and take over. So that's the second book. And it tells the whole chronicle of Satan finding the true secret of his origin, how he actually got started was created how we got started and it shows the final destiny of god himself and what happens after that so it's a comedy book and it's a history book from the future that is curated from all different <laughs> sources of demon scholars uh, angelic scholars historians and um and it has court court depositions <laughs> And also many <laughs> inanimate objects because with uh, with the uh, black magic and with the, the angels also have the exact same thing. They call it white white magic, but it's the same exact thing. They can animate any object and make it sentient. So for oh, that's example, cool. so for example, there's a deposition court document in here <laughs> where it's with a suicide machine. They have suicide machines as part of the story. And the suicide machine tells its story about the angels and why they all committed suicide. <laughs> so, Jesus. so before they go into uh, the deposition, the demonic, the, the, the demon lawyer will cast an enchantment to make the inanimate object who is a witness sentient so he can tell, give his testimony. So there's a lot of stuff like that throughout it. And it just has gorgeous illustrations of all of the, all of the uh, illustrators that I had in the first book and in my two my chil two children's books all signed on for this one. So I was so lucky and happy, James, because these guys are like the world's greatest illustrators. Oh, I got to tell you, by the way, I saw the first book. And like you were saying, the illustration is phenomenal on that. So if those guys came back, it's like yeah. getting the band back together. I love oh, that. Man, I, exactly. And I lucked out, I'm telling you, because these guys were, I mean, Tony Millionaire and Mahendra Singh and, and everybody else that was in it. Are, I mean, they were like Disney artists, you know what I mean? Some of the top Disney designers. 
Tony Millionaire is one of the craziest fucking uh, cartoonists in the world. He did Drinky Crow and the Mackies. And he had a sequence on Saturday Night Live for for years, you know, when he when he when he wrote that stuff. Then he had a series based on his drawings. So, anyways, there's interviews with God's Gun in here, you know, because it's giving God's Gun <laughs> and God's Diary, which God has written as a child when it, when God was a girl. Also, is given sentience and reads itself to the court. So I had a lot of fun with this book, but it took both books took 10 years. <laughs> Holy mackerel. That's that's a long ass time. Yeah, I'm a slow writer, but I did do two children's books in quality between shows. These, so there were four the whole time. And one of the children's books um, came in number five in the New York Times bestseller list. So I totally lucked out. <laughs> Good God almighty. This is, I guess, geez. No, I got to tell you what I loved about this, though, what? is I love how you start off by saying, this is a comedy book. This is this. And then, imme <laughs> no, then immediately you go, so I have these court depositions that I put into the book itself. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, I was like, wait, what? Like, it took me a second. I was like, did you say court depositions? You put that in a comedy book? I was like, yeah. And then, like, God has his own dude i just came from synagogue right now and i'm pretty sure i'm definitely going to hell for this <laughs> but i gotta tell you i love that you just said what was it god was a girl at one point he's got a diary and i just literally had a mental flash of god like in a pink fluffy room just like dear diary today satan was a naughty naughty boy it's like what <laughs> It's like, but you made him. I know. That's why I'm making. <laughs> well, you know what? You're I, getting into the spirit of the. You're getting into the spirit of the whole thing, and the actual relationship between Satan and God in the book is fucking touching. I mean, I'm writing it, and I'm crying. So it's beautiful. It, it, but the main thing is when I'm writing both of these books, I'm laughing hysterically because because that's how I write. You know, I'm, I just I'm, when I'm writing and I'm laughing, then I know it's good. When I'm not laughing, I, don't, I think it's pretty sure it's not good. <laughs> I would, well, that's generally the case. Although I do want to ask you, though, how come I like how this, this is my line of questioning. It never sounds that great, but in my mind, it sounds really interesting. I was going to say, <laughs> why, why hell and heaven specifically? Like, why did you like always have this is this is my attempt at an interview right now. Did you always have like an interest in sort of like the mysticism and kind of religious aspect and you figured take that or and you can make fun of it because it's like such a sacred idea or yeah. did you just like go like yeah what the hell why not it's just a cool concept i'll just go with that no I, I grew up as a with a religion it was baptist religion in a small town in massachusetts called littleton mass right next to concord and my father was the guy who uh, painted the church he was a house painter and so my brother and i my brother tom who's also who's hilarious we would paint with my father. And so he was a deacon at the church and it was a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> so, <There you> go. <laughs> so uh, and my father and mother were very respectful people. And, and they told me, they said, well, it's kind of made up, but who knows where the universe came from. And so these are just religions. You need to respect people's beliefs. I mean, nice. I, I lucked out with fucking great parents. So I came from a good uh, balanced background where i could make fun of it and i was a big fan of mark T to answer your question of why heaven and hell a big fan of mark twain mm -hmm. and so his book uh, the mysterious stranger is all about satan 
and uh, just the way he handled that and all of his he wrote about you know the myth mythos of of, of Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff and so nice. uh, it's what you said it's just that because it's so sacred and because my father had specifically told me a couple times oh, I wish they didn't do that because it makes it hurts people because they have their beliefs in the in the, in the Bible and other whatever their book is right. <laughs> why why do that why, we're all going to be dead soon anyways why hurt someone when they believe some and I didn't argue with him but it just was sweet to hear him say that stuff because in a way he's right because none of us know anything and the whole world is religious so stupid, yeah. stupid planet I mean including me and you oh absolutely so that was a sensibility that I did take to the bank but I, I busted it because of what you said earlier because it was sacred I could be Satan and then say any fucking thing I wanted. I love all, that. All bets were off. That's I love that. I was going to tell you, by the way, because you were talking about religion. I figured you got a kick out of the story. I yeah, uh, you got to hear this. Oh, I heard some right. of your religious stories. Did you really? <laughs> did you hear the one? Me. Did you hear the one about my cousin, uh, my little baby cousin? And no, no. All right, so I got roped into teaching my baby cousin Jewish history. Yeah, which uh, oh, I strange... this one. Oh, yeah. you heard this one. All right. Tell it though. Tell it. It's fucking great. You want me to? Yeah. All right, fine. I'll tell it. <laughs> <laughs> so I got roped into teaching my baby cousin Jewish history, which, which if you really think about it, very strange thing to teach a kid because a lot of death is what you figure out pretty quickly. <laughs> um, like it's a glorious history, but I taught. I figured, okay, I'll teach him Adam and Eve because that's like the beginning of the Bible. That's right, and I. And I got a phone call from his mother, like maybe a couple of days later, like she's freaking out of me over the phone. Like, why did you teach my child? And I was like, what do you do? Like, what? She goes, I was like, what happened? He goes, he's, he's afraid to eat fruit right now. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he used to love apples. He loved apple slices, apple sauce, apple pie. And my favorite part of that is he goes, he thinks if he takes a bite out of an apple that we're going to throw him out of the house. And I was like, you know <laughs> I was like, God damn, I'm a great teacher. <laughs> like he was taking that lesson. And then the worst part was, the funny part to me wasn't that, was that the next time <laughs> I taught him Cain and Abel. Which I was... <laughs> so, then, so then I get a phone call from his mother again, like, what did you teach him again? I was like, well, why do you keep hiring me? <laughs> so she goes, I was like, what happened this time? He goes, he's looking at his sibling in like a very suspicious manner. I was like... I think he took the wrong lesson in that story. <laughs> what I loved about that was like, he heard that story and then somehow he identified with Kane. I was like, who does that? <laughs> that's, that's not on me. That's on him. I don't know what the hell is going through his mind. You know, but, I, uh, love you. I love your stories because they're, because you're the only, I mean, you're the only guy I've seen in a while that's t that actually tells true fucking stories and they're all funny thank you very much <laughs> i mean can, please continue doing that because it's such a good hook and hardly anybody is doing it now you know well it's i honestly i was gonna say because i learned for me i grew up with like old school comics like my dad raised me watching like milton burrow <laughs> you know all those guys what was it sid Caesar? <laughs> like those clips of sid caesar that you would see occasionally like all the mel brooks stuff and the one guy like i mean obviously right now this is this is where it kind of sounds strange. So for me, when I grew up, my comedy, like stand-up wise, was number one stand-up comedian for me was Cosby. Oh, yeah. uh, and then followed up by Woody Allen. 
which this is kind of goes to show you where my comedy was at. But, uh, but to me, what I learned from those guys and then guys like Dangerfield and, you know, Shelly Berman and all those guys. But, um, to me, what it was all about was, uh, it's all family stories. Like they, they had that storytelling, uh, that they always used to do. I know, but not Milton. Say again. Not not Milton Berle. No, but Berle had like this. Cosby, yes. Cosby, no, yes. Cosby, yes. But no, Berle didn't have that uh, that storytelling thing. But he was able to basically just take any story, like anything, and just make it just insane, yeah. which I loved. To right. me, the funniest story about Berle was the fact that his mother used to sit there in the audience. Did you ever hear that? No. So apparently his mother was like the ultimate stage mom. And she would yeah. sit in the audience during his show. This is what he was like, like the number one show on television. And she would find a person who wasn't laughing and she would sit down next to them. And if she saw that they weren't laughing, she'd physically elbow them in the stomach. And just, <laughs> really? Stop laughing. Really? <laughs> that's what I heard. I was like, that's. That you got that's what that's a hell of a mother. Just like Jesus. Well, you know, you're first of all, you're so lucky that your father introduced you. I love that. The uh I'm trying to think if I have a good celebrity story I could toss at you in response yeah, you to this. Have you met all right. I've met a few. Uh let's see. Uh I had I'm trying to think of a good one. Okay. So <laughs> this was uh this is so I met a few of them. All right. So the uh, the first one, which I met, I met uh, I met Marissa Tomei. Oh, she's great. She's phenomenal. Not with me, but she was phenomenal. <laughs> so, oh, I heard uh, the story, but tell it because it's fucking. Oh, great. So, oh, you know this great. one already? God damn! I gotta get I gotta get new material now. <laughs> no, I, I did a deep dive. I saw all your stuff because I liked it so much. I was laughing. So I just went on. I saw everything I could see that you did because I loved it. All right, let me let me preface this by saying I went to go see this is a bit of a long one. So I went to go see the movie I, I went to go see the, the Broadway play Phantom of the Opera with my yeah. parents. And I was sitting down first off, like for me, uh like I'm all the way up and you know, I'm in the balcony and I'm all the way up in the back and everything, and I'm watching and it's already difficult. Like you can never actually see what's happening when you're on the balcony, but I'm sitting next to this lady. And there's a scene where the guy takes off his mask. And it's supposed to be a very dramatic scene because the guy's like hideous or something or whatever it is, right? You can't see shit up there. Exactly. Yeah. But the funniest part to me was the guy took off his mask and everybody went silent. And then the lady sitting next to me just goes, put the mask back on. <laughs> he goes, holy. She just yelled out, holy shit, he's ugly. Put it back on, man. We don't want to see that. I started laughing my head off. So... To me, what that reminded me of was um, I love going to theaters where they all yell. So for me, I had a uh, I went to go see Spider-Man 3. I don't know if you remember that movie. That was uh, the one with uh, you're lucky. It was uh, it was. Yeah, I love Spider-Man. I'm a huge Marvel fan, but that one was not one of the better ones. But uh, there's a scene where like Spider-Man gets pissed off and he smacks Mary Jane. It's a very dramatic scene. And then this guy in the front row just stood up and he just goes, yeah, man. That's how we do it. And I was like, what the? Who? For, I love how he said we, like I was involved. And just so, to plus the story, because I know the ending, is this right, so the, the guy was striking a girl brutally. And right. Then, then he, what did he say again? Say it again. So he yells out, this is in the movie. So the guy, so all of a sudden the guy in the theater just yells out, yeah, man, that's how we do it. And I was like, good <laughs> God. 
And he, no, but his wife, the girlfriend, that he was with somebody and she stood up and she gave it to him. She's like, what did you say? And he goes, you heard what I said? And Spider-Man agrees with me. And then he just walked out of theater, which <laughs> we're, like, we're like, what the hell happened? So now fast forward a couple of months. Well, what I happened bumped, was that you saw an idiot who... <laughs> I saw a moron, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now fast forward a couple months, I'm walking through Central Park and right. I saw Marissa Tomei. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm busting because I'm like, <laughs> she was in the Spider-Man movie. Yeah, it's everything, right? So I was like, oh my God, Miss Tomei. I'm a big fan. Can I get your autograph? And I think, you know, I think she was probably like really busy at the time because yeah. she looked at me. She looks back. She looks back at me and she just walked away. So I was like, I was like, so well, you, were, that, you were pissed. So, no. So I looked over. I was like, that's the last time I've ever seen one of your movies, so, <laughs> which is which is a complete lie because I freaking love Marissa Tomei's movies. So, yeah. But she doesn't know that. So. Yeah. Then the guy, I heard all of a sudden, there's a kind of guy who just goes, yeah, man, that's how you do it. And I was like, <laughs> and I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, holy shit. I look back, I was like, Spider-Man 3. He goes, yeah. I was like, how you doing? He's like, not bad. I'm like, how's your wife? He's like, we broke up. I'm like, yeah, I kind of figured that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same exact guy. I, You know what? I don't know if he was. I don't know if he, but I think he just, who the hell knows? It was, I thought it was hilarious. I was like, oh, God damn. It's so but, uh, no, the other good, the other good uh, celebrity story. I remember this one. Um, so the, the the best. Well, there were two. The first yeah. one didn't happen to me, but it happened to my aunt. I was with her. Do you remember Harold and Maude? Oh, it's one of the, my favorite movies. Hilarious movie. So yeah. my aunt, I was walking with her on the street oh, one day, and she met Maude. Really? Yeah. And then the funny part to me was like, oh, cool. It's Harold. And, you know, it's Maude. So I was like, okay, I got to say, you know, she's going to say hello because she's a big fan. But my aunt, for some reason, just like didn't like, I, like all semblance of like sanity just like left. And she just yelled out on the street, you are Maud. So she's like, yes, I am. And my aunt just goes, oh, my God. And then we just walked away. <laughs> like, what? Like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> that was it. She, it was, <laughs> she looked at us like, okay. Like, yes, I am. Oh, my God. We confirmed it. Let's move on. <laughs> Didn't bother anybody. But uh, the sweetest guy I ever met, sweetest guy I ever met. And that was, was Ruth Gordon, right? That's who you're talking about. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that was her name. She's very, very talented. But the oh, sweetest yeah. guy I ever met was Jimmy Fallon. Oh, really? Super nice guy. That's nice to we interviewed him. I had a so I had a radio show back in college, and somehow I don't know one way or another he was like, we got him to like be on the show. Wow. So he, he called in the day after we killed Bin Laden. Wow. Okay, which was already a ridiculous thing. So he was like, I think he knew we were somewhat nervous. So he's like, okay, I'll take the lead. This was uh, I think he had just had like late night. He just got the yeah. late night show. So he's like, so where were you guys when we shot Bin Laden? And everybody's like sitting there. Like one guy goes, I was, you know, I was sleeping. The other one goes, I was doing homework. I'm looking at these idiots. Like you can make something up. Like when you're sleeping and doing homework. I'm like, you got a celebrity. Tell something, say something. So he asked me. So I told him, which was the truth. I was like, I was in the student center. I was with a girl. I was eating hummus at the time, ironically. And uh, yeah. he looks back. So he goes, you can't eat hummus when you're with your girl. I was like, why not? He's like, because if you try and kiss her, your breath's going to smell. 
was like, first off, Jimmy Fallon, I told him his full name. I'm like, that's false. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I asked if she wanted to hang out. She said, no. I said I had hummus. She said, yes. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, really? I was like, yeah. Now let's talk about your show. There's a lot of stuff you could improve. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. But it would have been great. <laughs> first of all, you got to hire me. No, it didn't happen either. He's a, but he's a good guy. He's, he was so nice. He was that's like great. sweet. He was cool. It was great. That's good to oh, hear. Oh, man. I love that. I never met him. Well, say again? I never met him. That's good to hear. Uh, he was a nice guy, at least as far as I know. But yeah. uh, all right. In the meantime, I know we're coming up. I, actually, we're we're already past the hour mark. I was going to say. Are we? I think we are. Damn, we're at an hour and 14 minutes. That's all right. Oh I don't care. God. This is good stuff. Well, let's but, do it again. Let's do it again. Would, I would definitely love to have you back on the show at one point. Uh, well, I'll tell, and, my, uh, I'll tell my Cosby story then. <laughs> I, you know what? Yeah, I do. I'm going to hold you to that. I definitely want to hear the Cosby story. Is it, is it as good as Norm MacDonald's Cosby story? Oh, my God. It's better. <laughs> Holy shit. That's that. All right. That, so this, it's similar because both of us have positive stories about them. Good. All right. So this is a this is the ultimate cliffhanger because we're going to leave it on that then. But um, well, we have positive stories about that monstrous person. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, before everybody found out what he was really like. Oh, my uh, God. It's so crazy. So at any rate, I have some insights into his psyche because he hired me. So I have a whole you won't believe it. It's just amazing. But you know what? Next time. After 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 this whole talk, I'm honestly like I would believe it because literally every somehow or another, like I said, you've managed to meet every single person and get hired by every single person that's ever come out of comedy. So I'm like, yeah, I kind of believe you got hired by Cosby too. I'm like, God damn. But um oh, okay. Before we before we go, I do want to say yeah. all right. Fun, so James. thanks for having me on. This has really been fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I also want to say, once again, the book is entitled Encyclopedia of Hell 2, The Conquest of Heaven, A Demonic History of the Future Concerning the Celestial Realm and the Angelic Race Which Infests It. Uh, and if I remember correctly, I believe uh, you have a book sign. Uh, you, no, sorry, you have a book release party on Zoom happening this upcoming Wednesday. Yes, it's which, Wednesday at, <clears throat> excuse me, at 5.30 because it's a live event in Los Angeles time at PST. So for the East Coast, it's three hours later. But uh, it's going to have all these comedians. All these comedians I know are going to do readings from it. And uh, <laughs> I, my daughter is, my daughter, I have two kids. And my son and I just finished outlining this book together. And we're working on that. My daughter and I were on the kids show Adventure Time, which was a big children's it's show. And she played Marceline the Vampire Queen. And this I is played, uh, this is Olivia, if I remember correctly. Olivia Olson, yeah. Very she played Marceline, right. and so I played her father on the show, the Lord of Evil. So we, <laughs> so we used to go to all the Comic Cons and stuff like that as the father and daughter. We'd sing the songs from the show. I'd bring a guitar and we'd sing, you know. So she's going to be singing with me on the uh, book signing, the virtual book signing, which is this Wednesday. So if you look up Feral House Books, uh, feral, feral books, uh, feralhouse.com, you'll get the information about the uh, book signing. And it's free. You just uh, check, check it out. Because it's going to have all of my comedian friends doing readings <laughs> and making fun of me. <laughs> well, well, you got me at the word free, which nowadays, 
I think uh, <laughs> anything that's free is definitely a good thing nowadays. So absolutely. But um, the last thing I got to tell you, which I think uh, one, I want just want to say this, and then uh, we're gonna sign off. Uh, when you fr- when I when I reached out to you, yeah, I was like I was like yeah okay great I'm, I'd love to have him on the, I'd love to have you on the show and then you you sent me a message back and you said yeah. You know, you sent such a nice message back. You're like, you're, you're a mind reader, which no one's ever called me that one before. Uh, <laughs> and what I liked was that you said, yeah, I've got a book release uh, party happening on Wednesday and I want to promote my book. So I was chatting with my pop earlier and I was like, and I was showing him the message. I was like, yeah, you know, my dad, you know, I was like, yeah, pop, look at this. Uh, so this guy and my dad looks at me. He's like, wait a minute. Is this the podcast that you're doing? I said, yeah. He goes. Do any of these people know that you actually don't have a big show just yet? I was like, <laughs> I was like that's a very good question. That's a very good question. And he goes, well, what's the answer? I'm like, I'm pretty sure they don't. But you know what? What the hell? Let's just do it anyway. <laughs> so so you have actually, you have the honor, Martin, of being the first actual release. of. You're going to be the first episode. Because originally I was going to like build up a bank. And then I was going to. And then I was just going to start doing it. And then you said you got the thing on Wednesday. On Wednesday. Oh, yeah. I've got to make it happen now. So this shit's going to move. This is, this is the moment where you find out you just wasted an hour and 20 minutes of your life. Well, dude, you know what? I am honored. You know why? Because I Go saw your fucking act and you made me fucking laugh. You are fucking funny. So that's why I did this. I mean, I looked you up. You know, so thank you very much. So that's why I'm here because you're funny. <laughs> so well, if you just could continue to keep doing it, you're going to be a big success. I guarantee well, it. I believe uh, to quote my mother from your mouth to God's ears. Although, you're truthfully right. speaking, after you're a conversation right. about heaven and hell, I don't know how much God wants to listen to us right now. <laughs> that's another story. Well, let's but, talk yeah. again. I'll tell Absolutely. you the Cosby story then. And, uh, Sounds really, good. Really fun meeting you over the airwaves, and thanks for having me, James. Absolutely. Martin Olson, thank you very much for joining the James Sutton Posse. And be sure to check out his book. Once again, it is entitled The Encyclopedia of Hell 2, The Conquest of Heaven, A Demonic History of the Future Concerning the Celestial Realm and the Angelic Race, which infests it. And apart from that, I literally have no way to end the show. So Martin Olson, thank you very much. And before I was going to say, where can we find you? Let's get your handle so where everybody could stalk you. Go for it. <laughs> Uh, my my website for writing is martin olson o l s o n dot com, and also the book is available on on Amazon, so you can check that out. Amazing! All right, guys, thank you very much, Martin, for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. And uh, the James Sutton Posse out. Let me hit the stop button now. <laughs>